Yeah, what what patter have you got today? Okay, let's, let's go. Uh, so hey, I'm. Oh hey, uh, I'm gonna do a do a little bit. I'm gonna do a little bit. No, I can't. I'm not that comedic. Okay. Uh, I'm just curious about your hat. Okay. Is it American. It is. Um, which I kind of find a bit embarrassing. Yeah, you should be. <laughs> <laughs> no, probably but, wrong audience for that one. No, Always. no. I mean, I'm just saying. Like, I'm an Englishman. Yeah. No, you're Welsh. You're right. I'm English Welshman, mm. and I'm wearing an American baseball cap. And then I get why. Because it's very comfortable and I, I like the look, but I get people coming up to me and thinking that I support the team and I feel like maybe I'm, I'm a bit is, of a Are the Steelers baseball? I think so, but I could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I could be very wrong. What what made you buy the hat? Is it the, the colours? I like the colours. I like the colours. Sue me, you know? I like the colours. I will sue you. <laughs> but you know, that's, you know, that's besides the point anyway. <laughs> but yeah, that's besides the point of, um, the point of this episode. Yes. Which is featuring Richard Raymond. Yeah, um, who is amazing. what? What a great episode with this guy. He's an amazing dude. He's um, a writer and director uh, based out in LA, and he's had like an amazingly rich and varied career. Um, we kind of pinpoint, I suppose, a few projects that he's done. Uh, we spent most of the time talking about his 2018 film Souls of Totality, which contains a single take sequence filmed during a real solar eclipse, which is which currently is absolutely mental. Yeah, like that's the first in cinematic history. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> which yeah, he talks so about in the podcast as well but it was um yeah the film was selected at 16 oscar qualifying film festivals won a total of 12 best film awards including best short film at rain dance and yeah it was long listed for an oscar and got like um, amazing critical praise and you can watch this like um well you should watch it on vimeo because that's what he wants you to watch it on but um yeah it's on youtube on short of the week on on all sorts of platforms so this was an amazing film that we really went into depth on yeah um, we also talked about Desert Dancer, which is his 2015 uh, film um, starring Frida Pinto. And yeah, what did we talk about that? Well, we're going to, yeah, like the making of Desert Dancer and what happened after that, what he didn't like about it uh, and why he came back to short films and making films like Souls of Totality. We're going to bits on distribution, which we haven't really talked about in the podcast yet, um, and how he got his films distributed, what it's done and not done for his career. Um, persistence as a director was a huge one um, that I learned loads from um, from Richard and then I think what what I loved was craft we talked so much about craft and um, him as a director and him finding his style and his voice and how he collaborates with cinematographer production designer costume everyone the actors how he comes up with stories how he gets films funded absolutely and we also touched on um, a little bit on the short film A Million Eyes which is also yeah. amazing and was also long listed for the 2020 Oscars yeah this guy um, knows what he's talking about yeah he knows what he's talking about <laughs> right let's get into it let's do it um, we probably mentioned this in the introduction but this is like actually quite a first for us because a previous guest of ours Chris Overton um put one of your short films as his favorite short film and that's how the link happened he was so generous and so kind chris wow yeah he was yeah that was literally i mean i heard that and i was like oh wow that's so nice it's so really <laughs> yeah that was to be honest that was awesome for both of us as well like yain sent me a screenshot of what you'd put on instagram we were like oh my god <laughs> people are listening the power of it's short happening. films <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, yeah. But yeah, did you know Chris from before? I don't think no. you did, did you? Um, you just, um, yeah, how did you come across the podcast then? No, because he reached out and uh, Chris he was so nice out. to say what he did and he forwarded me the podcast 
And he said, look, we haven't met before, but I just wanted to know I mentioned your film on this podcast. I see, I see. And so that's how I heard about your wonderful podcast. And I was like, oh, wow, look at these, uh, look at all these filmmakers. I'm going to listen to some of these. This is great. And then, you know, obviously so generous of Chris to be so thoughtful, so instinctively thoughtful and generous with his praise. You know, he's won the Oscar. And his, and I also, <laughs> but the thing is, is that, um, Better than the Oscar is the life journey he had with that film. That's the real reward of a journey like that is the lessons that you learn from going on such a journey and the profound sense of, a, you know, achievement more in terms of what he now has this clarity on that he wants to do now than, you know, it just kind of going on instinct and wanting to make a film and then stumbling into the Oscar race and it, and it winning that, mm. that, that was amazing. Um, Shah, I'll kick us off with the first uh, first big question then. Um, so you made, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, in 2014, it was Desert Dancer, which is a big feature film that you made. What made you then return to to short films and making Souls of Totality? And It was, well, <laughs> it, it's, it, the short answer is, is that, I after Desert Desert Dancer wasn't the the kind of film that I wanted to direct. It wasn't tonally, it wasn't narratively the the type of film that I had envisioned myself directing for ten years before I'd made that film, and nor is it the day after I made that film. I just kind of got caught up in the story and caught up in this. Oh, we can do this, and I I um, with the help of some incredible people raised all the money for that feature film ourselves and we shot it in Paris we shot it in London we shot it in Morocco and then it got bought by this American distributor and and we shot it on 35 mil I gave my tiny insignificant fee on that film um for the for the flights back and forth every day so I could shoot on 35 mil and and pay for these flights that would then ship it back to London and process the, the film because I knew I wanted it to shoot on film, but you know, it's it's I wanted it to look a certain way, and I never had any expectations with that film. And then it became released, and then you're meeting people, and they're saying, "Oh, so these are the types of stories that you want to take, you want to tell." And I was like, "Well, no." And people define you by what you've done before, and I, I found that really fascinating. So I kind of got stuck in this place where people's expectations of the types of films I wanted to make were based on real life, true life, inspiring, uplifting stories. And that wasn't what I wanted to do. The second thing was I felt that despite the actors being incredible on that film, they were studying dance for 12 months in London at Sadler's Wells and, and their performances and everything was amazing. I felt that, and I'm just being totally honest, I felt that I'd let myself down as a filmmaker. I felt that the film was in utterly manipulative in terms of its emotional quality and I didn't really meet the the kind of the place that I felt that I could be as a filmmaker and so I, I felt this profound sense of disappointment after that film and I felt that that was also reflected in the opportunities or lack of opportunities that were coming my way after Desert Dancer and so I just was in this place where I felt that I wanted to start again. I just wanted to, I wanted to press the reset button 
and I wanted to start again from the ground up. And I also had become a father and emotionally I had gone through the shift. I felt that I had seen the, I felt that I'd seen the world in a very different way than I had previously seen things. And I, and so when this idea came about to, to make a short film around the solar eclipse in 2017, I just, I just used that as my opportunity to reintroduce myself as a filmmaker. And it wasn't intentional. It was all subconscious, but you know, and behind that is this engine of wanting to just create. And I always feel that directors are, Directors are, you know, the the person on the set on day one that everyone's looking to for the answers, but out of everybody, they're the person that's been on a film set the least amount of time. Everyone else, all the crew, the cast, it's their third or fourth gig of the year. And we're there, you know, being like, yes, I'm back. I'm collaborating. <laughs> there are other people around me. I'm dressed better. I, my shoulders are back. I'm sticking my gut in. Here we go. And, you know, but like it's... Because otherwise you're just alone creating in your room, creating in your little office, and you're just trying to get back to that place of collaboration. So I I felt that I had had enough experience now to be back on a set and be less kind of wowed by that moment of being, oh, wow, here I am, and actually just focus on the work and focus on telling a good story. And just serendipitously, we had a a nanny for our child who was from Oregon. My wife's American, our children are American. I'd moved to America uh, at that point. And she was telling me about the solar eclipse. Um, and apparently for like eight months, 10 months, all the hotels, all the flights to the path of totality were sold out. You couldn't, you couldn't get there unless you were driving. And she told me, why don't you come to my family house and camp in a field? And you can I just interrupt that? Yeah. What, what, is the, um, what is the path of totality? What is, the, what is that? So when the moon covers the sun, it okay. projects a shadow on the earth that's about 30 to 50 miles wide. And it moves really fast across. It, it literally, NASA, the NASA data shows you that at this time, on this day, at this second, and this exact location, this band of darkness moves across the earth and there's an eclipse solar eclipse roughly every like three years or four years but but they were always out in the ocean or antarctica or australia or somewhere random and this was the first time in 100 years it had gone across america they called it the great solar eclipse of 2017 and the nanny said that that we should go up and come and see this once in a lifetime event in America. And we were like, yeah, yeah, that sounds fun. And then coincidentally, the following day, I had dinner with two writers and two actors that I'm friends with. The actors were a Welsh actor, Tom Cullen. And at the time, his partner, Tatiana Maslany, they're both now, you know, married to different people. But at that moment in their lives, they were, they were a couple. And also another couple, uh, a writer, Ben Bolay and Kate Treffery. And um, we were having we were having dinner and I mentioned to Tatiana that we're going to go up and go see the eclipse and everyone at the table's like, oh, we should all go camping, do it to go camping together. And suddenly I'm sitting there and I'm just looking around at the table <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm looking at Tatiana Maslany, Tom Cullen, and I'm thinking about the writers and I'm like, fuck it, we, we should make a film. 
And they're like, what? That's nuts. And I, and I get on my phone and I Google uh, cinema history, total solar eclipse. And it had never been done before in the history of cinema. One film claimed to have done it called Baracus back in the 60s. But they didn't actually do it. It was all filmed in the studio and they had a B unit just shoot a sun and they intercut it. So it had never been done to shoot a scene in a movie um, during a real solar eclipse. And no one, obviously because there hadn't been a solar eclipse for a hundred years in America, no one had any experience of what it would be. And I remember the look on Tatiana's face and she looked at me and she said, so it would be like a one take wonder. I would have one shot to do it and I'd have to get it right. I said, yeah. She went, I'm in. And so Tom, and so Tom was in and I looked at the writers and especially my good friend Ben Bolay, who has written two feature films for me as well. He looked at me and just shook his head and he's like, oh, for fuck's sake. Because <laughs> the eclipse was seven weeks away. So he knew he now had to write a, a, a short film script. Now, there was no idea. So then all inspired by this... Uh, kind of, you know, this op this possible opportunity of making a film again. Um, I got on the plane with my wife and and child, and we went to Oregon, and I met up with the nanny's father, and we drove, and he drove me around like we looked on a map of where the the band of darkness would stretch across Oregon, and we drove for hours and hours, and he said, looking for a location, and he said, uh, "Oh, my! Fr I'm a friends with a farmer. You should check out my friend's farm. It's this organic farm for pigs and cows." And we went to this farm, and the farmer's like, "Hey, well, you can shoot in my field. Yeah, you can shoot here. There's no problem." <laughs> so I basically just took photographs of this incredible farm, and and then on the drive back, I found a school bus in a field, an abandoned school bus in a field. And I took pictures of that, and I emailed wow. them to Ben and Kate, and I said, "I don't know what the story is, but..." It, th these are the locations and the whole film the only reason why anyone likes that film is because of the script and I have to hand it to Ben Bolay and then Kate who did a pass on it afterwards of coming up with this story of a love story in a suicide cult and this wonderful he said some you know I knew I wanted the film to end with kind of like a some pace and running through a solar eclipse that was this just that was the impetus but ben was the one who came up with the whole idea of it's a cult and they based it on heaven's gate which was this cult in the 90s in america san diego they believed that a spaceship was hiding an alien craft was hiding in the tail of a comet hail bob comet and if they killed themselves, they would be transported to that ship and go to another world. And so we loosely based it upon that. Because only in America you could would there be a cult that believed that there would be a spaceship hiding in the comet of a tail of a asteroid and Elijah Lab. Yeah, like and then and then if you died, you it's just it's just amazingly rich of just this fascinating insanity that you can dive into it. But I instinctively love making things emotional. I love love stories. And Ben wrote this wonderful love story set in a cult. And, and we got the script and I read the script. He wrote it like he delivered to me two weeks later. So this is now four weeks before the eclipse. And he delivered oh, the script to me and I read it and I felt, shit, this is gold. This is, this is really good. 
And um, and then Ben's wife, Kate, who's the other writer on the script, she's now a major writer on Stranger Things. She's been um, oh, the, wow. one of the main writers on Stranger Things since season two. And now she's writing the Stranger Things play that's opening in the West End. And um, oh, yeah. she's the main writer for that play. So, um, but I think that was in part because of Souls of Totality. So, which was gr- wonderful oh. for her. And she, um, the, her brother is a producer in, in Los Angeles. And so he, she introduced me to him. I'd met him before, but this was a proper introduction. Her, his name's John Treffrey. He has a production company called 4WT. And he was like, I really want to get involved. I can crew this up. And so the miracle of John Treffrey being able to crew up a, a short film and Ben and Kate writing the short film. And then I went out with my wife, whose name is Nusha, and we 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 are friends with a family who were going to spend about $20,000 on a holiday, if you can imagine. And I said to them, don't spend 20 grand on a holiday. <laughs> spend 20 grand coming to Oregon where you're going to have this once in a lifetime opportunity and you can be part of the crew. And they did. They canceled their vacation and they used yeah, that money wow. to fund our short film for $20,000. Oh, and this all wow. happened in the space of a few weeks. And I, I'm a big believer in, look, films are the most difficult thing in the world to get off the ground. But when they happen, they the planets do align and they do happen with a big, Literally, as well as uh, metaphorically. (laughs) You just feel that you're on a wave and you're riding the wave all the way to the beach. And it's like, right. So, so, so the actors got, um, the actors got the scripts. They were like, they were salivating. This is great. And, um, and off we went in, uh, I went to my friends at Panavision in London who had supported me since I was 16 years old, 15 years old. And I said, could you introduce me to the guys in Panavision in America? And they did. And they gave us a camera. And there was a DP I loved. And his name is Sharon Blansky. Now he's Oscar nominated. But then he had only done The Witch. And I and I just oh, said to Jared, he's done The Lighthouse since. He's incredible. And I yeah, said. Yeah, well, it's, it's absolutely beautiful as well. Well, I, yeah, well that, that's Jared. Shot, it's shot beautifully. That, that's, that's 90% Jaren and 10% Oregon. But it's like. So Jaren's one of these DPs that I think he doesn't feel any pressure. And um, so when it comes to, an, uh, you know, you're operating a scene that you can't trip up on, that you've got to get perfect in a solar eclipse, he's the perfect temperament for that because he just, nothing phases him. And he cares as much as I do about the image. He cares as much as I do, if not more about cinema. And that's who you want to kind of surround yourself with is people like that. And we all got in cars and we all drove up to Oregon and we all camped around the nanny's house. And it was, you know, we had lots of couples, lots of families. We were like our own cult. And we were cooking and cleaning and washing together. We were doing everything together. And we went and shot that short film. And it was, yeah, not to get too much ahead, but just a kind of in this cyclical nature of how disappointed I was about that I'd let myself down on Desert Dancer. On day one of Souls of Totality, I'll never forget, the first shot of the short film was the scene in the corridor where they're going back to the room at the beginning of the film. And um, I just remember going, oh, just put the camera back. 
I'm just going to do it in a wanna. And the scene played out. And I, my ego, just every sense of wanting to prove to people that I'm a director, that I'm a filmmaker, that just went out the window. I didn't care about myself anymore. I didn't feel like I had anything to prove. I just put the camera back, let the scene play, and it was done. And I was like, that's how I want to direct. That That is the style that I've been trying to get to. And I realized that I was the one getting in the way. This is not a therapy session, but still. You know, <laughs> it could be. <laughs> I was the one getting do you mean, in the way. Do you mean sort of like no frills filmmaking, like, you know, just letting no. it play out sort of thing? Or how do, you, how do you mean exactly? Not frills, but I find that when you have, when you have like Desert Answer, when you have films that are cut, 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 close up, mid, wide, two shot, over the shoulder, using outtakes to kind of get genuine reactions. You're trying to create truth in a fake way. And especially when you have a good script and you have two fucking brilliant actors, when you put the camera back and you just let the scene play, these moments, truth exists, and these moments of real magic happens, and you just get out the way. And it's not no thrills because there's a slow push in, there's... You know, we've we spent a long time on the composition, on the lighting, on the mood. But it's just simplicity and it's just um it just fit that script, that style fit the script. And um yeah, and it's just how I wanna do stuff in the uh from now on in. But for me, can I, it all just went Can I click. chat back just before can, can I just chat back to when it went click? That is literally you on the set, you'd set your shot up. And you played that take out and then that was it. That's that's how I want to make this film. That's how I want to work as a director now. That wasn't like beforehand you were like, this is how it's going to be shot. You, no. you worked that out then and there. That kind of just all clicked together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Because, and that was the other thing. Like on all the other, look, is I think first assistant directors, especially when you start doing features, you know, it's very important that, to them that you've planned ahead you know shot lists how many shots what angle like if you've got any storyboards if you've got this and i found that that really um restricted me when i'd done that because then you're going into the day with a plan and what that is doing is that is limiting everybody and so you're telling the actors okay the blocking for this scene so i want you to come into the door and sit here and then the camera will move around to your left. And as the camera moves around, then I want you to just kind of gradually turn your head. <laughs> so you're treating your actors then as puppets. But that's what I discovered on the feature film I was doing. And on this, I just hated it. I didn't, I didn't want to do that. And so on this, I just didn't want to go in with any plan. I just wanted to be on set, look at the environment, and then immediately go, we're going to do this and this. Now, when you have a first AD, I still think it's good to have a backup plan. So you should still do those lists. You should still show you have a plan because there might be a time on set where you can't, where you're not reaching that moment of decision of this, we're going to do it like this. But, but, I, but for me, just not having a plan and just being there and immediately feeling it and instinctively going, oh, it's like this. That for me was the click, was just going on my instincts. And... Um, because I always think if you check in with yourself, it's never going to be wrong. And if you're there, it's, it's that's your voice. Yeah. And it's not something about actually being like on the set, it's lit and the actors are in, you're in this space you've been dreaming about as well. I think that it will come to you and 
it will be more original or it will be more authentic to you than if you are sat at your computer just doing a shot list and yes. you just execute the shot list. Yes. Yeah, which I think, yeah, it's, it, it's quite boring. <laughs> yes, totally. But yeah. it's also, it's just like you've got to let the actors have freedom. Yeah. Even if your yeah. space is very, very limited, even if you know, like, but you, if you're working with great actors, empower them. Like, the short film I did after Souls, I had the most jumping ahead now, but it's it's kind of, um, it relates to this. I did a short film after Souls called A Million Eyes, and there was a really experienced actor called Joe Morton. Do you ever see Terminator 2? Is he the... He's Miles Dyson. Is he the... I recognize uh, okay. oh, Who's, who's, which... Is that... So the photographer, is he the, the, the guy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I definitely recognize him. He's the mentor. So in T2, like, you know, Miles Dyson is the creator of Skynet and he's the one at the end holding the weight above the bomb. And he's like, (laughs) and he drops the bomb. (laughs) So um, he was on set with me. Uh, We had this scene and it was like a four page scene that we had really worked hard on the script uh, with the writer for a long period of time. And I I had in my head had this elaborate way of shooting this four page scene. And the first AD turned around to me and the line producer turned around to me and she said, uh, you have half an hour, all the crew's going to walk. <laughs> it's late at night. This is, you've pushed it as far as you can. Um, for, so we had lots of technical problems on that film. And um, she goes, you have half an hour. And I was looking at this four page scene and I was, and I didn't know what to do. And I did something I'd never done before, which is I admitted to the lead actor that I didn't know what to do. And I, and I said to him, I said, I actually don't know what to do. Can you help me? And fucking actors are the best. He, he literally <laughs> turned around to me. He goes, let's get into it. And he loved that I was honest and he loved being invited into the problem solving of it all. And we sat together and he got a pen and he goes, I don't need that line, I don't need that line. Oh, I don't need that. What if I did it like this? And he basically just turned this four-page scene into a one-page scene that was so much more powerful and profound. And I just did a one-two. Uh, I shot it in two angles. And we finished with five minutes to spare. And it's my favorite scene in Boom. the film. And Is I'm, that where he's telling him that his photos are yes. amazing? Yeah. To go out. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It's that scene. That. And it was late at night. Yeah. And, the crew were t- and the crew were so grateful that I was able to... Uh, just work with him and think on my feet and shoot it and it it's so it's i find it fascinating how the film gods will kind of surprise you in ways and and force you to make decisions that make the film better it's really fascinating i love that like it's, it is all about inviting you you hire people because you believe that they're good at what they do so let them yes contribute and let them kind of come in rather than like you say just you know, treat them like puppets, like the actors, like puppets, all the DP, like, I want this, I want that. And, you and know, you my, feel way, like my a, way. If you feel like a puppet, it's like, you know, it's, there's less incentive for you to do a great job because you don't feel creative. So, you know, but if you're yeah. feeling like creative and fulfilled, then you're more likely to do a great Yian job. is an actor as well. So he's, right. he's well, experienced, yeah. I think, all sorts. <laughs> I can tell he's very <laughs> handsome. He hasn't got a face for radio. He hasn't got a face for radio. So there you go. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, so, that, that, so that's the thing. It was, that's the part of the click. It's just getting, getting out of the way of yourself as well. I really think it's more of a, a psychological thing. It's like the minute you stop trying to prove 
Like a lot of people will stamp their own style on their films and force it on just to show who they are. And the minute you just kind of get out, get out the way of that, you can serve the story in the, I think Ron Howard does it really well. You can never tell what a Ron Howard film is, but they're always mm. the perfect for that, whatever story he's telling. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I thought maybe we could jump into like, I guess it kind of, it relates to what we're talking about, but yeah, your opinion on coverage, I suppose. And, um, you know, you, in sort of totality, you favor like these long takes, uh, which are beautiful as you discussed then. But yeah, was there any, I'm curious, was there any pressure to, to cover yourself a bit if the timing was slightly off or yeah. How do you feel about that generally? Like, yeah, shooting to give yourself other options in the edit that comes down to your confidence and whether and whether you know what what you know what you want in advance um with souls it just felt that the scenes existing we do it a number of times in the single takes just worked and they didn't need like there's a here's an interesting example um Towards the end, when she's coming back with the shopping, she walks into the house and th that again was, we were talking about doing a variety of shots and a variety of coverage on that scene. The, the, the script called for her walking into the house, giving the bags of the exit items to the leader of the cult. He then goes into the next room where everyone's in a room singing Total Eclipse of the Heart. And then, and then she goes there yeah. and sees all of the... Uh, uh, the the hoodies lined up you know they've all put them on the coat hangers and she sees her her secret boyfriend's hoodie and smells him and cries and then he comes back and he goes it's time and she's like okay and she leaves and that was a number of shots but i just remember like i just filmed it in this one shot and all of him going off screen to go to this other room where all of the cult members were it played so much better in sound and just staying on her, staying on her emotion, being with her. And again, it just kept proving to myself, I don't need all of this coverage. I just need to stay with what's important emotionally. Who's the point of view of the story? I'm, I'm with her. This is subjective from her point of view. I want to stay with her. And it just tells... It just made that story stronger. So I never felt on that I needed coverage. And I'm and I'm I'm now always asking, who is this scene from in regards to the point of view? Yeah, who who is seeing this scene? And just stay with them. And also I think that gives you more control in the edit. Uh, especially when you go on to features, because then you've got like twenty people, you know, offering suggestions and producers and executives and finances and whatnot. But if you've kind of shot it in camera, you know, and you're, and you, and you have a plan, and you, and you know the feeling that you want this to evoke, then no one can give you any suggestions because it's kind of, <laughs> oops, there's nothing there. Yeah. So, so how would you, how would you deal with that then as a director? You know, you want, you just want to stay on her and say there is the financiers there and the exec producers are there, and they want the coverage. Yeah, and I, I think, yeah, well, they, then you can shoot coverage. It's fine. It's not, a, look, at the end of the day, it's like there's nothing wrong with having heated debates and even calm debates in the edit room. I, I think the mm -hmm. problems always arise when you tell people no. Um, 
there's no reason not to shoot coverage if someone is convincing you, someone that you respect on your team, saying, I really think you might need this. Like if the first AD said to me, just to keep it safe in the edit, I really think you should shoot this, then I would shoot it. That's totally fine. I mean, I, I would be a fool not to listen to somebody's experienced opinions. And I'm sure that mm. is the same for a lot of filmmakers working at the top of their game they are relying not just on their actors, but on their entire team. And part of that reliance is them saying to them, you should just do a wide just to cover yourself or just you might need a, um, a couple of pickups or some close-ups just to cut to in case you don't want that. And um, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that at all. But in terms of general coverage, like if I've got uh, um, the scene from this point of view, I don't want to do it again in close-up. I don't want to do it again from the side. I don't want to just cut for cut's sake there's no like a cut yeah. should mean something like when you cut it needs to really mean something my mentor growing up was a british filmmaker playwright renaissance artist called philip ridley he's yeah i know philip ridley yeah yeah he's yeah really, when drama school we used to read his plays all the time i was yeah, gonna they're mentally, for, yeah. uh, vincent river yeah. he's there pitchfork disney he's the most brilliant writer but He's also one of the most opinionated filmmakers. I produced a film for him before I directed called Heartless with uh, Jim Sturgis. And Phil would always say, you know, like, what is the, you, you know, there's got to be a point. Like, if I'm going to cut, it's got to mean something. And, I, and he was a real mentor to me. And so I, I took that to heart. And he's right. Yeah. What's it doing to tell the story? I, I totally agree. Because I, I, I see you can, when you look at certain things and there's, there's something that I'm on post in, uh, at the moment and it feels like a very formulaic cut. And it's like, there's no reason for certain cuts. And you're so right. It's like, why cut when you, why? What's the reason for that for each cut? I think it's so interesting to to think about when you're making something and, you know. No, you're right. And yeah. some, but sometimes like you cut to, because it's not good enough. Like sometimes you didn't get what you wanted and sometimes you need to cut away. But again, sure. it, but that comes down to casting it right, which is everything. Yeah, yeah. And I want to, I wanted to jump into um, the score because like the score in um, Souls of Totality, is, it's really simple, but it builds that like the tension up um, so, so well. Uh, and there's a one point where she says, stop the, it was to say, stop the fucking drumming. Yeah. Uh, when they're in the supermarket, right? I'm just, I'm intrigued as to like how, because that's, I don't know how that somehow just worked so well, her shouting, stop the fucking drumming. So I was wondering about that and then, in, in, like, how you incorporated that into the script and then how you collaborated with the composer on that. Well, it came from the script. The drums came from the script because Kate Treffery and Ben Bolay found out that Native Americans in the United States, North America, they have looked at historically solar eclipses as a message from the divine. And they have always felt that when the moon was in front of the sun, it was like a creature eating the light. And that to get the creature out, they would drum. And they would keep drumming until the light returned. And so I think Ben and Kay read that and they put that into the script. And there's a lot of that in Oregon. There's a lot of that in some of the places where the eclipse was going on. So in the script, it actually had the, the, there were these groups of Native Americans off in the distance playing the drums, but I couldn't actually film that. I didn't have the time, and and that scene in the uh, that scene in the gas station supermarket place, um, yeah. which proudly I will say that's the only day for night shot I've ever done. That was shot at night. Oh wow! And wow. 
the two tiniest lights that we had in the van through the window to make it look like daylight. It's crazy. Wow. Um, that looks just like day. Yeah. Yeah. It was, that was the only, but again, that was, I had to finish. So originally the scene was she's hearing the drums from outside the, the gas station. And, um, and she's like enough with the fucking drumming. And the scene was meant to continue. She gets to the counter and the woman at the counter taking the money is like, they do it to scare away the darkness so the light will return. And I didn't have time to finish that scene. And I, I remember sitting on set. And as soon as I heard the lines, enough with the fucking drumming, I was like, oh, that will cut great to the bite. <laughs> and so, yes, yeah, so the pounding of the, yeah. Because yeah. I just felt yeah. oh, yeah. the pace up of the oh, film. Yeah. So I was just sitting at the back of the gas station, hiding behind the, like the chewing gum or something. And I was just like, you yeah, know, it will cut amazing to the, to the bikes. And then I just thought, well, we don't need to see the drumming. The drumming's in her head. And we don't even need to, because ex- I think the first line of the film is, oh, they think it scares away the darkness. Do you hear? Yeah. yeah. The first I was going to say, there's something like that. It was, I, yeah, vaguely remember yeah. something at the very beginning. And you'll notice that line is over black because that's ADR we added in just to get, uh, just to get the uh, exposition in of what the drums are. And right, okay. there is... Um, there's an amazing composer I'm very good friends with called Benjamin Wolfish, but he was too busy to do the score at this time. And he introduced me to a young Juilliard graduate called Michael Dean Parsons. Wonderful guy, super talented. And he was just, and I met him and he said, I could do this. And he just went to town on the drums in his dormitory <laughs> using all of the instruments from Juilliard, which you're not meant to do. And he got his other fellow students to just do on the drums and bang it out. And um, he kept sending me these drum tracks and we just put them in the film. And it, so it's meant to, it's tying in, it's meant to evoke the, the, um, the Native American mythologies of scaring away the darkness to get the light back. And I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, it's awesome. It works super, super well. And in the, in the script yeah. phase then, so when, when you, so, so would, did the writers literally give describe the beat like the drum presence throughout the film yeah i think they they just they started it when the couple were in the bus over the over the field you're you're hearing these drummings and they're like why they won't stop with the drummings and then again they're just saying you can hear like a i think a few pages later in the script they mentioned the drummings again were coming in and the drummings would keep coming and keep coming back in but but it worked so well but the script had actually called for the other thing that was happening in Oregon was there was a massive solar eclipse festival. Like about 80,000 people were packed in a field a few miles away from us. And they were, it was a concert and they were going nuts and there was litter everywhere. And it was, it was kind of the most visually the most disgusting things about, you know, crowds um, during something so beautiful and, and um, tranquil as a solar eclipse. And um, they, originally they were meant to as she's running back to the field you were meant to meant to hear total eclipse of the heart from over the over the other end of the field but the drums just work so well we just so we just did yeah just did that yeah it does i i i'd I'd realize getting to like actually like you shooting this eclipse scene like can you give us um you know some context for the listeners who may not have seen it around what that is um, and then how much like how much planning and blocking like obviously you talked about like is it with NASA you were tracking the eclipse and 
you know, how did you block that? It's just crazy to me. I watched it. I just couldn't believe what I was watching that you did. Yeah, that in a while. Totally. And it times up just like so perfectly. Well, anyone who listens to this, if you want to watch the film, watch it on the Vimeo channel, not on YouTube. But the Vimeo channel, after it finishes, there's a making of as well. But but basic, ba- basically, um, that that shot, taking myself out of the equation, that shot really came down to three people which was Tatiana Maslany, uh, who was a trained dancer. So she understood choreography and timing. The first assistant director, Doug uh, Metzer, who, you know, has been doing it for a long, long time. He was the first AD on Dances with Wolves. You know? Wow. So he's like like the outdoor guy. And and he was off on the side of camera shouting, 10 seconds. 20 seconds and Tat had up to four minutes and Tat had rehearsed it and rehearsed it enough time to know exactly where she needed to be every time he called that out. And So you did ADR for the whole sequence then, including the the lines? No, no, we just, just we just on the sound, we just cut out Doug's voice and just replaced it. So we knew every 10 seconds we had to cut out his voice in the background. But so he was just, no, he he did that through shooting. So he would cut, call out behind camera the times. And I said to Tat, look, at whatever, I think it was at like 60 something seconds, I need to make sure you're at the top of the gate. Because according to NASA, that's when the moon is going to cover the sun in completion. And I need to see, like, we're not just panning up to the sky. You have to take us up to the sky because uh, it's subjective. So I said, if you're ahead of time, because I got the feeling that her adrenaline would be pumping through her veins with full force, and so she might sprint faster, slip on the gate, fall over, do something <laughs> to bring back that time. And she, if you look at the film, she did. She, she slips on the gate because she can hear Doug, the first AD, going, 25 seconds. And, um, and like... Uh, but don't let me get, don't let me say it wrong with too much bravado, because the truth is, is none of us have been in a solar eclipse. Jaren, who operated the whole thing, he didn't know what the stop on the aperture needed to be. Yeah, no one had seen it. We went driving around to astronomy centers asking, do you have any idea? But <laughs> like, at Jaren and I at night would just drive around finding scientists and art, and no one knew. And um, so Jaren, we had a focus puller on a remote doing the aperture and the focus. And he was on a mic and Jaren said, I remember hearing Jaren go, open it up all the way up, all of it, open it up the aperture. And uh, he was pulling focus. And, um, but, but Jaren's operating on that scene was just amazing. So, so it starts with the run. And by the time she gets to the gate at the top of the gate, we know that's when the eclipse hits. So what we did is we worked our way backwards. So I said to Tat, okay, so let's start at the top of the gate and now let's time it, climb down and run back and let's see how far, you know, run like 20, 30 seconds back that way. That's, we know that we have to start the scene then 35 seconds before the eclipse. So by the time you get to the gate, it will be the eclipse. And then you fall down, you, you hurt your leg, which gives her the limp, which bought us time for the camera operator to run in sync with her. Otherwise, if she's still pelting uh, it, we couldn't. So, yeah, so we invented the limp so the operator, so Jaren could stay in touch with her. And then she gets to the gate 
and the entire crew are the ones but under the blankets so and the ones in the far distance they're logs we just put logs and put blankets over the logs my wife is the first um a person under the blanket that gets lifted up yeah and then and then tom cullen did the most amazing thing on the day he saw that jaron was going to trip on a wire so he then took jaron from on the back and guided him backwards like as almost like a, a grip would do and so tom's an accomplished filmmaker himself so he just picked that up and he just knew to do that i'm so grateful for tom um who was in desert dancer and um so yeah, and then we, we we shot it and we had planned it so the camera would be low and look up as they came together for the kiss. But that was also planned that way so the crew could get out from the blankets, run behind camera and look at the eclipse because that was my promise to them. If you come up for this film, you'll see an eclipse. So that was the oh way my of keeping God. my promise to the crew. I noticed that they disappeared. I noticed that they kind of vanished, or like, or I thought that maybe some of them, especially in the last shot, they weren't there. I was oh like, yeah, they all go, don't they? The, yeah, I was like, thinking like, is there a commentary? But was that, that isn't that the, is the idea that they do make it into the space? Yeah, I was like, yeah, oh, like, yeah. yeah, yeah, we're the crazy, <laughs> yeah, we're the crazy ones, and they're right <laughs> because yeah. you don't want it. The thing is, is that you don't want to, you don't want to end a film on death, and you don't want to end not a film like this. You, you don't want to end up on death. And I think they're gone. You're like, oh, what? Because it's like that. We wanted the same feeling as the end of Inception where you just see the, the Nate, whatever it's called, like just, just tip a little bit. We just wanted the blankets to go and it's gone. And people to question, what is that? That was a nice way to, that unsettling awesome. yeah. feeling yeah. of um, of the film. And um, Amazing. Yeah. yeah, and that was the that top shot of all the blankets. That was we got the farmers. Um, he had like one of those big machines that lift you up, and so we. Uh, <laughs> there's an Instagram page for Souls of Totality, and you can see the pictures. There's literally Jaron and me up on the top of this yeah. farmers thing with the camera. It's it's brilliant. I I I love um I love that that kind of can do filmmaking style using whatever you can to to mimic a crane shot. Yeah, it's amazing that. Yeah, I was gonna say it's amazing that um, you guys did it without that much information from the sounds of it, like in terms of not knowing how exactly it was gonna seem. And it, and I understood you got you had the seconds down, but yeah, aside from that, it must have been yeah. I, I'm surprised that you had to like felt like sounds like you had to act on your feet quite a lot during it and sort of figure it out at least technically. Does that sound about right? Yeah, and also yeah. like. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm hiding behind a rock with a monitor watching the scene. Peeing my pants on how good this is looking. Like I'm like, <laughs> fuck, yes. Yeah, like I'm literally punching the sky. I'm like, I can't believe how good this looks. And then when, when the scene had finished, it was the most amazing feeling, like to look at the monitor and to look up and see this celestial event overhead i'll never forget just the way the eclipse actually looked because it was it was the only time i saw the eclipse myself was just a brief moment to look away from the monitor to look up and um i was just like what is going on and when i called cut i always learned by the way add 10 seconds on to whenever you think you want to call cut that's always the most helpful tip for anyone any filmmaker and um when you think you want to call cut wait and when i did call cut everyone in the crew everyone burst into tears 
we were also we didn't realize i guess the pressure we had put ourselves under the relief we were feeling and the unexpected profound deeply profound sense of just that we were part of something incredibly special and we had just been in something incredibly rare and special all kind of culminated in this massive emotional release and we all just cried and i'd never it was the most incredible feeling i've ever had and um and i've spoken to people on the, f the on the film my producer john treffrey included and we're all chasing that we all want to get back to that again we noticed that with um um with this film that it's on a lot of different platforms so you're on souls totality is on short of the week alter um amaletto dust amaletto yeah and i believe like i think i, I watched one of your interviews you said it had massed over a million views i'm sure it's more than that now um significantly uh like what have you gained from that or have what have you and specifically like what have you gained from being on those online platforms nothing <laughs> oh you're kidding me nothing um really no, but everything i have gained has been through other ways um okay i um and i know filmmakers that have had short films that have had 40 million views nothing they get nothing from it in fact i'm i'm actually quite i'm quite um of the opinion that i'm I, I feel quite negatively towards um, these platforms. I think they should pay filmmakers more. I don't think it's fair mm. that Vimeo, especially Vimeo, um, give this staff pick out and don't pay the filmmakers. It's like, they're a yeah. big company. They were owned by recently by a, a big corporation. Um, they're worth a lot of money, but they're not paying filmmakers. And this, this kind of... This kind of sense that being on a Vimeo staff pick means something within the filmmaker community. What if it means something? You should pay your filmmakers. How? Because the first yeah. film is not the hardest film to get off the ground. It's the second one. It's because you're still paying off the first one. It's because, yeah. you, you know, and, and it's sometimes it like musicians, it takes a few albums to really get into your stride. I couldn't have made Souls unless I've had the experience of producing for Philip Ridley directing a film you know and then finally getting back to doing another and doing it again takes time to build your craft takes time to to understand and recognize and know how to apply your voice and you know let's you look we're speaking at a time that both the writers guild and the actors guild in america are on strike and that's over money and i think it's really important to recognize that it's not fair that filmmakers make short films and struggle to recoup the costs of their short films. Yes, they're doing it to prove themselves. Yes, it's their business card. But at the end of the day, you know, the, it's not fair that a lot of them live in poverty and a lot of them can't uh, recoup their money. And I mean that to Alta. I mean that to Omeletta. I mean that to all of them. And I'm grateful they screen our films, but I think the money they offer, like Alta, well, they offer like 500 bucks uh omeletto is free yeah. like it's like omeletto is nothing yeah it's okay. a joke yeah um look and yes they have built a million people but there's there's some schmo on tiktok that's got 10 million people like really who cares like yes <laughs> you have an audience for your film and yes you might see 50 comments of people saying they liked it or didn't but truly the real reward of making a film if we're going to be really honest with ourselves is the making of the film and then I think it's really important before you go and make a short film to ask yourself, and there's no wrong or right answer with this, but what is it What is it you want? Do you want to just practice your craft? 
and and have the opportunity to screen your film to an audience because there's so much learning in that when you see it in a cinema which is why i think by the way short films are as valuable and as important as low budget indie movies because short films will screen theatrically more often if they get accepted into festivals than an indie film that will go straight on amazon you know and i think and and, and not only that in hollywood and in london wherever it's so much easier to get somebody um, in a place of power and position to watch your short film than it is to get them to watch your hour and a half long indie movie that that is you know that is uh, that costs a million pounds. So I think short films are crucially important and have real world value. And yes, of course, if you introduce yourself to somebody and say, "My film won." so many festivals and my film is being seen by so many people, then they might feel that, oh, wow, this this will be worth watching. But I think that's the extent of what those things are worth. I think the most important thing is to know why you're making it. So if you're making it because you want to make a feature, then that short film should tie in to the feature tonally or narratively. If And then so you can use that to sell that feature film. And you must have your feature film ready before anyone even watches your short film because then you need to be able to talk about the next thing immediately. And what you'd never want to be doing is making a short film because you want to make a feature and then you haven't written the feature and you haven't scheduled and budgeted and been underway with the feature for a long time. Damien Chazelle, who is a friend, he did Whiplash. But he took he, he struggled for a couple of years making Whiplash and he took a scene from Whiplash, made it into a short. And then yeah, the short yeah, was great what, yeah, and the short was what was got got the money. And so again, that's a great that's a great path for for that. But if you're if you just want to make a short film to have the experience of sitting with an audience and being in a film festival, that's really commendable and really amazing. But whether whether these platforms do anything for you. It's nice that uh, that a, a number on a computer screen says one point something million people have watched your film, but it truly is meaningless. The 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 real meaning behind it is what you've learned on your journey, the making of it, and that you have something to showcase to your peers and to producers and to actors, so you can work with them in the future. Those are the real issues. Has it helped you in any way with um, when it comes to? securing like funding for the next one in terms of oh this look my film has had is on all these platforms and has had over a million views is that just that fact helped no one cares no one cares. no one cares um what's the what's the like solution around that then if you are like because obviously they're not giving any money to you as the filmmaker even if they've got a million views on their platform through no but your all... content like what how do you like as filmmakers, like how do you how do we create a system where you get that? Fair the system is you share. make a good film. A good yeah. film will always rise, will always stick its head oh. out of the the pack, and then that it. Mm. But what I'm saying is, is that I've been blessed that Souls has been watched by um, people that if you told me that were going to watch my film like ten years ago, I would think you were having a laugh. But but I'm talking about like I've I know that Christopher Nolan's watched Souls of Totality, J.J. Abrams has watched Souls of Totality, Phil Lord has watched Souls of Totality, Josh Brolin's watched Souls of Totality, and they all write emails saying, 
I really love your film. That is what is meaningful, is when people that, yeah, you, yeah. that you've looked up to your whole life are watching your work and you're not asking them for a job. You're not asking them to produce anything for you. You're sharing your work with people that you admire. That's the confidence. And then when you go for meetings, you go into those meetings with that. You know, and you uh -huh. say yeah, okay. that this person, this person has watched my film or um, who's there? David Heyman watched it, really liked it. But it's just like that. Those are the views that really matter. Um, there was. I, and does that not get you help? Like, does that help you in any way? Surely with, you know, if David Heyman, his huge producer and loved your work, does that get you a meeting with him? Yeah. Does that... And it did. Yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. There you go. And that's, that's what I mean is the real oh, meaning wow. is being really strategic with who's watching your film. My dad, when I was growing up, he would always say one knockout punch is better than 24 little punches. And I really want to take that into this. Like if you're, it all comes down to what do you want as a filmmaker? Where do you want to go? What are your ambitions? What do you want to do next? And then use your film to get you there. But having a million views of people you don't know is not as effective as being really strategic and going, okay, I'm going to send this piece of work, my business card now, to these 50 people. Because those views will matter to where you want to go to next. Now, having said that... Um, there's a filmmaker I love, Steve Kenny. He made a brilliant film that we were in competition together at uh, Tribeca called Time Traveler. It's, um, it's my favorite short film because it brings me so much joy when I watch it. I heard a story, and I haven't spoken to Steve to confirm if this is true or not. I heard a story that he had sold that short film to Virgin Airlines. And you know on Virgin Airlines, they, they, they actually have a short film menu. So everything I'm going to say is, with the exception of Virgin Airlines and Kathleen Kennedy's assistant was sitting on Virgin Airlines, watched his short film and said, this is amazing. Send it to Kathleen Kennedy and said, we need to get this guy pitching Star Wars. So like those, those things can happen as well. <laughs> And I had to say he did, he submitted it to Virgin Airlines, and that's the thing you can do. You can get it. Well, no, airline. we we had with Souls, we had and with a million eyes, we had a sales agent. Uh, there's a brilliant sales agent called H264 in Canada. There's some really great sales agents out there, but sometimes um, just the market isn't buy it doesn't buy short films as much as you hope. And no one literally, we tried to sell Souls of Totality to every territory in the world. No one wanted it. Did the same with the million eyes, not one buyer. And we tried for a year to try and sell it. No one. So we then we were forced to put it on YouTube for free, which is not fair to the people that have, uh, you know, paid for the money to make put it out there. But Virgin do buy it. I think they buy it for like a thousand pounds or something like around that. But um, but um, but that Sorry, kind of distribution ahead. was really was really helpful to him. So that was wonderful. I was so delighted when I heard that. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, like, when you were saying, like, all these amazing people have watched your film, is the reason they've watched your film because it was in these great festivals then, film festivals, or is it because you are actively emailing them, emailing these people or using your contacts to get that film in front of them? Yeah, no, I'm actively reaching out. I'm every day... Um, you know, hustling and getting it out there, yeah. and introducing myself to people. Literally, I was in the supermarket three weeks ago and Chloe Zhao was in the frozen chicken aisle 
And I went up to her. And I said, Hello, I'm a big fan. She went, nice to meet you. And I said, I've made a film. It's I think you'd really like it. It's shot during a real solar eclipse. She went, oh, really? So we started talking because she's a filmmaker. And she said, send it to my agent. I'd love to see it. And so I did. And that's like... That, and so you use it as your business card. You use it as as your introduction to people. I'm not asking anything. I'm just proud to share my work. And who knows what will happen in the future? Yeah. Can I, can I ask how you're phrasing those emails? Because um, I think that's quite a big one in terms of getting your work out, especially to the people who, you know, are in the, the big knockout punch people. Um, like you say, you're not phrasing it as give me a job how are you phrasing it are you phrasing it as this is a film i made i'm really really proud of uh, yeah, i'd I, love to hear your feedback that kind of thing well i don't write cold emails i'm just but i'm like you know you you meet one person you meet two you meet two you meet four you know you, you, you're getting out there you're you're trying to meet your community as much as possible but when i have the opportunity to meet somebody in person you know you just introduce yourself and you say can i send this and when you send an email to people especially in America, I just try and keep it no longer than two sentences and just yeah, okay. just keep it super short. Don't ask anything. Your only ask of, I think, of those types of people is, can I share my work with you? And when they say yes, then you share it. And then that's the, and that's a one sentence email. You just keep it really, really brief. You know, and my our thumbnail has some festival clovers on them so they can see that it's been at some festivals. But that's kind of expected, I think. You want to, if you're sharing your work with somebody, they you just have it on there and, and they can see the thumbnail and it's unsaid and unspoken and they'll click and watch it. And, you know, if they like it, they'll reach back out and say that was wonderful. And then if something comes across your desk that you feel that could be something, an opportunity to work with that person, then you reach out later. And and um, But I think it's important to just introduce yourself, introduce your work so people know about you. Yeah. So looking back on now, um, and I think actually Amelia Eyes is on on a letter. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So, so in the future, in your future projects, are you still are going to be submitting them to those online platforms, even though you feel like they they haven't forwarded your career? Um, yeah. This I'd rather have a film out there than not. The work is there to be shared, especially for the actors. You want to get the actors' performance out. To I think it's really important to. I don't want to just, I want to make a film for global audiences, but I just, the question in specific was about, did, did you get anything from doing that? And, and, and nothing, did you gain anything? But, but I think it's important to, if, if uh, after your distribution acquisition attempts have been expired, after you cannot or have sold your film, um, in our case, we couldn't and didn't sell our film for a variety of, you know reasons but then you should okay great so we should put it out there let's get out there people can see the work look at these great performances look at our film um i definitely think that's great i think that's really important vimeo is always the best place to do it because now omeletto and alter and dust they put adverts in between your short films yes yes i watched your, your film today for the second time on alter and i had two adverts to get yeah, that's just why I'm always like, please watch it on Vimeo because there's no adverts and it's the better quality. Yeah, I'm curious about how I, you kind of went into it on Souls of Totality, but funding of your these shorts, how do you go about putting it together? You know, you've mentioned and 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 we all know we're both filmmakers as well as like getting these things off the ground is so hard. Um, how do you go about doing that? I mean, you know, for A Million Eyes, for example, how did you get that made? I asked 
fifth I asked about ten people for five grand each. Like does it? I mean, but some incredible to get to ten, you got to ask about a thousand, and um, it's really hard. It's the most soul crushing, difficult, <laughs> most awful thing you can do is ask people, you know, to part with their hard earned cash to support your artistic dreams. It's really, really hard. Um, especially in America, there's no funding bodies, there's no government lottery money or anything like that. But what America has is is people that a lot of people that that have a little bit of money that believe in the arts and if you've got a compelling pitch and you've got a little bit of you know, sincerity and charisma to, to, to kind of find them and ask for, for them for their support financially, then you can get it. There is, there's one tip I would always give someone raising say 20 grand, uh, tell everyone you've raised 19 and you just need the last one. If you say that 20 times, you'll get 20 grand. No, <laughs> I love that. No one ever wants to be the first in. But literally, if you've got no money, go up to someone and say, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to raise 20 grand. I've raised 19. I'm so close. Your chances of getting the one grand off that one person shoot up dramatically. And then you got one grand and just keep saying it. Yeah. Keep yeah. going. I do those people tend to, be, to be, tend to be friends or family or are they just like people you know with, with a bit of money to spare? I, I ask everyone I know. And generally, you'll you'll always get no, but you should speak to this person. And then I reach out, I ask, get to know them, get a no, but you should speak to this person. And there's yeah. just keep going. It it's, and it's the really incentive hard. is like, is it like sort of do do you say would you be interested in being in the exec producer on this or just or just helping somebody in the arts? What is there any incentive? Well, if if like someone that? gives like. Well, no, if someone gives you money, they are an executive producer. They'll get a credit, of course. You, you promise, you, your promises to them, my, it's just your hopes. I hope this will be accepted into film festivals. When it gets accepted into film festivals, we'll all be there together. It'll be an incredible moment. It'll be something, I, my, I think my only promise to people that have fine, funded the short films is that you'll be part of something really special. You'll be part of something that you'll be proud of for the rest of your life. It's a tax write-off if you tell them if 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 you lose the money, you could write it off. Like you, it was an investment that was lost, so you can write it off against your taxes the next year in America. You can do the same in England, and um, yeah, and it's just like, please, like, and 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 also like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like the million eyes is about the importance of mentorship, especially in very underfunded communities, and how important just being supportive of a child's artistic endeavors can be. And I, you know, in London, I grew up with so many friends, you know, that wanted to do something in the arts and their mum and dad would be like, get a real job. And it, that's really crushing, you know, and those, those voices are extinguished before they have a chance to speak. And I, so it's, it's not, a, it's not a massive charity thing that I'm trying to shine a light on. It's just the simplest notion of supporting. If you see someone whose instincts are, are leaning towards the arts, just support it. And a support it can be, you know, just words of encouragement. It can be, you know, let me get you a better camera or it can be anything. And so those messages resonate with certain people and the people that the messages resonate with will be attracted to hopefully supporting your film financially. Souls was lucky. Souls was just a family who were going to go on holiday. And so we, we really lucked out with their insane generosity. 
and um yeah, yeah. but yeah it's it's it's, uh, a lot it's of persistence it's a lot of persistence it's really hard yeah. and i think every filmmaker knows that no one's really investing in the film they're investing in you you know yeah you, it's yeah. you yeah. so it's how you present yourself it's how you come across it's your sincerity it's your truth it's your passion for the project um and uh yeah and it's but it's kind of a rite of passage for most filmmakers and it's great practice too because when you're in a meeting with a studio it's the same thing go pitch yourself yeah Yeah. it's the same thing can i can i ask um just something about obviously like especially when you're starting out i think is the highs and lows i mean that throughout your career as a filmmaker the highs are real high and then there's lows where there's no work and you're like oh my god why am i doing this am i even good enough to be doing this blah blah blah. how do you or how have you got over those those lower periods um or have you experienced you like <laughs> how, oh yeah or have you experienced them? you know uh, i assume you have i mean you've made so many projects and like you know you're you're living life as a as a, as a director and i think it's something that uh, especially to our listeners who are all you know they're all trying to make you know still all trying to make shorts and you know it's still trying to live and make short films and try and make it as a director. It's um, it's a real tough, tough gig, <laughs> as you know. Yeah, it's really tough. Look, it was really hard after Desert Dancer um, not having opportunities come my way. Um, it was also harder because I have had, in the past, after Desert Dancer, I had had three or four feature films fully cast, Fully greenlit and collapse before they got shooting. The first one was with Benedict Cumberbatch. The second one was with Tom Hardy. The third one was with Evan Rachel Wood. The fourth one was with a young actress here. I won't mention her name because it didn't get confirmed. But, you know, it's like, and each one of those films, you've got a script. You've spent years. You've raised development money. You've gone out. You've, you've hoped that... Benedict would read it and then you go he loves the script and you go to meet him and you spend hours and time with him and you're like this is fantastic we've connected he likes me he likes the work we're going to make this film together and it doesn't happen then the same thing with Tom Hardy these are two of the most incredible actors of our time you're spending time with him you're 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 getting to know him you're going through the project uh that was a film that I was going to shoot in Sierra Leone and I'd been to Sierra Leone a number of times and um he was really keen on that and he was going to produce it with me and it collapsed it didn't happen uh, the, uh, for a variety of reasons and then I had another film that I'd spent like 10 years on called A Thousand Paper Cranes and that was set in Japan that starred Evan Rachel Wood that actually got announced but th- we didn't raise the amount of money we needed uh, out of sales at the Cannes Film Festival and um, and then COVID hit, so that film collapsed, and um, and then I had another film that was set in Montana, and literally just as we got the company on board to finance that film, that film collapsed. So four films in a row, um, and that was like five years of my life, of almost working and not almost working, and and I did the shorts in between that time, and it's crushing, it's awful, and there are so many times you're just like. This is ridiculous, but I don't have any other choice to keep going. And now great things are happening. And, you know, 
I'm sure I've got eight projects on the go at the moment and maybe two won't happen, but I'm pretty damn sure the rest will. And just got to keep going. And there isn't really any other choice. I've dedicated my life to this art form and this craft. And it's the only thing I know how to do. The only other job I ever had was I was a manager at Blockbuster Video when I was younger in North London. And um, and I was really shit at that. So I had, you know, so this is, the, this is the thing I want to do. And I just feel that there's no other choice. But the people that enable that dream chasing, uh, my family, my dad, my mom, and now my wife, it's just... It's just, um, I'm very lucky. And there are lots of other people that are not as lucky as I am and they have to give up on their dreams. And and um, so I wanna make sure that I, you know, make the most of it and make stuff that's actually gonna make a difference if if, if at all possible, you never know. Yeah. That's so that's just what you remind yourself of in those kind of periods yeah. where- For sure, because it's crushing, mm. it's awful. Yeah. In a way though, I mean, it's pretty amazing. The fact that you have had those experiences means that you're in the right place. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, it's, it's clearly like, you know, there is something reassuring that you've come this far. So the next time it's going to come over. It'll, yeah, it'll get there. Yeah. It's, it's the, just to articulate what this far means that when actors of that caliber like you, like your writing or like the script you're, you're part of and want to work with you, you know you're doing something right. So just yeah. keep going, yeah. keep yeah. cracking at it, and it will happen. And yeah. that's what's happened and happening. Right. And so, yeah, we hit the last hit the last question, which is the reason I guess you're on the podcast anyway. But um, what is your favorite short film, or I like to add a short film that has really, really impacted you? Well. <laughs> there are two but there are, yeah. there are, it's because more it's because the filmmakers is the great films but it's, it's also because the filmmakers are um embody what i think is great about the best directors out there which is people who are generous people who don't feel competitive who just share and want to collaborate and meet different people so then they were two people i met at the tribeca film festival in 2018 one i mentioned already time traveler by Steve Kenny, and um, which is just r real. It, 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 he's got a lot of joy in his soul, and that joy and that truth comes out a lot in his work, especially in that film. And Sam Johnson, another Brit for Earthly Encounters, which is just like, you know, it's like an epic short. And he got money from the UK Film Council, and he uh, and he and he just went and shot probably the most ambitious short film I've ever seen. But like. Steve, he just had inertly a sense of joy about the work and a, and a real sense of cinematic language and a film that you could, both those filmmakers will be really big film directors and will be, you know, directing, you know, really ambitious and commercial feature films. And that's what I connected with, with their work. But just in general, just what wonderful people they were and how kind of the imprint of who they were as people kind of, went on to their short films. There are loads of short films that you look at and go, oh, that's impressive, that's really good. But but those two for me really just stuck out as, you know, if I was a head of a studio, if I was a producer looking for filmmakers, I'd want to work with those two. They're really great. Yeah. And they're both based in- Can you say the names again? Steve Kenny. The names of the- Steve Kenny on Time Traveler and Sam Johnson on Earthly Encounters. Amazing. We'll make sure we check those out.
Yeah. Um, can, can you? I wonder if you, you can find those on YouTube or Vimeo. I guess. Yeah, just Google them. They'll yeah. Link them. Yeah. yeah, we'll link those in. Um, amazing. Thank you so much, yeah, Richard. This has been. Thank you. <laughs> Such yeah, a pleasure so to talk to you both. And um, like, yeah, I hope we didn't rabbit on too much. <laughs>